Well, good morning, Hope Church. Um, it's a real privilege to finish off the series we've been doing together, looking at discipleship. Today's message is this, learning from success. Now, having had week after week of excellent teaching, I think, into discipleship as a church, the question now perhaps is, what does it look like when we're doing this successfully? What does successful discipleship look like? And how do we learn from it? That is the theme that I'm running with today. And the passage that we're reading from is in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn there with me because I'm going to be referring to various verses as we go through together. So Luke chapter 10, and I'll read initially verses 1 to 12 and then jump to verses 17 to 20. And I'm reading from the ESV translation. It says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs, in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the labourer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Let's go to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word given to us, that it reveals Jesus and who he is and what he's like. It reveals to us who you are, Heavenly Father, and what you are like. And I pray today as we hear your words spoken, may it take root in our hearts, may it really bring about a harvest, and may you send us as your workers into the harvest field. Lord, we long for more people to come to meet you as their saviour, as their friend, as their Lord. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by asking you to bring to mind a successful person. 
bring to mind a successful person. Now, with that person in mind, I want to ask you another question. What does your answer to that question reveal about how you determine success to be? Is your successful person powerful? Is your successful person influential? Is your successful person wealthy, famous? Is your successful person loved, hated? What does the answer to the question reveal or imply about what you determine success to look like? And would Jesus fit your definition of a successful person? Now, I'm sure, like me, you'll often have times when you'll reflect on your own life and question, have I been successful? Am I successful? How can I measure success in my own life? What measure should I use? Is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? Is it about achievements? You don't have to look very far in this neck of the woods to see, if you like, a more worldly definition, what the world would say is successful ever before you. Great big mansions, great uh, private estates, prestige cars. There's a lot of wealth around here. Of course, we, we don't have to look far to encounter poverty either. Are we to conclude that those living in poverty are unsuccessful? Well, we know that Jesus was poor. So there are all kinds of challenges to how we define success. And here's another thought. Once you've achieved some measure of success, how do you handle that success well? How do you learn from it? So we spend so much of our time grasping for success, trying to be successful, and we, we find the books that tell us how to be successful in whatever it is we're working at, to be successful parents, uh, to be successful in our business and in our work, to be successful in a skill, and to aim for success is not a bad thing, and I'm not suggesting that it is. But how many of us are looking for a book which says, having become successful, how do you use that success really wisely? Because I'm sure we can think of many people who have achieved the standing of success and have have squandered that or it's they've had a terrible fall and tragically in the church that often happens that you see high profile ministers who've achieved notoriety who've achieved respect across the church across the world having a terrible fall and it's happened recently and it's devastating again it forces you to question once more well what does success look like now the passage that i've just read is a fascinating one as we reflect on some of these questions. Because what Jesus does is he gives his disciples a taste of ministry success. He sends them out. They go into the towns and the villages. He sends them out with authority from him and power from him to, to lay hands on the sick, to bring the kingdom of God. And as they go, phenomenal things happen such that when they return, they are celebrating the fact that they did some incredible things and they are elated. We're going to come on to their reaction shortly. 
He gives them a taste of ministry success. And then he drops a sledgehammer of truth, a granite-splitting, earth-splitting sledgehammer of truth that is arresting and provocative and and surprising, his response, and forces us to really, again, reflect on what should I boast in? What success should I be striving for? What does Jesus want me and you to dwell uh, or, or to reside in as a place of confidence for a successful life? So we're going to look at that together. We are learning from success. So the three things I want us to see are these. Firstly, we need to learn how success is the Lord's to give. Success is the Lord's to give. Give. Secondly, we need to learn how success requires trust in the Lord. Success requires trust in the Lord. And then finally, we're going to learn how success is redefined by the Lord. This whole scene is set up for us in Luke 10 with Jesus directing everything. In fact, this is what Luke says to us. The Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72. He sent them on. He then describes to them everything that's going to happen. He tells them what to do when they go to these villages and what not to do. It's very, very clear that this whole episode has been planned and determined by Jesus. This is his initiative. This is his work. Everything that the 72 go on to do has been prepared by the Lord for them. And it's interesting that Luke says the Lord appointed. He doesn't say, and Jesus appointed 72. Of course, Jesus has various names and titles. Here, Luke chooses to say the Lord has appointed them. The Lord sent them. The Lordship of Christ Jesus is a foundational truth for us as Christians. Indeed, this famous verse from Romans 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A Christian is someone who says Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord to ascribe to Jesus authority over my life. He's able to speak into my life. He's able to challenge me. He's able to direct me. He is the one that plans and plots every step that I take. He is the Lord. So I confess, Jesus, you are the Lord. I'm sure many of you will be sat there going, yes, amen, he is my Lord. He is the Lord of my life. These are foundational truths for us. However, practically, I so often assume that I am Lord of my life. Hey, we do that. Why, Lord, aren't you doing this for me? Why haven't you opened up that opportunity for me? Why isn't this or that happening The implication, of course, is that you know better than he does. 
that you are, in effect, the Lord of your life. And, oh, I know how often I'm challenged in my own thinking and how I need to submit to Jesus as the Lord and to trust him. I often quote Spurgeon because he's a legend. And Spurgeon said this. It's one of my favorite quotes. When we come to the end of self, we come to the beginning of Christ. When we come to the end of self, we come to the beginning of Christ. There's no better place for me to be than in a place of wholehearted surrender of my will, of my ambitions, of my desires to one who knows me intimately and intricately, who loves me, who is for me, who has a good plan for me, who wants me to prosper, there's no better place than, than that moment where I say, hey, Father, your will be done in my life. And also there's probably no more challenging, oftentimes arduous exercise of faith than being able to fully submit myself to his lordship so that when he says, I want you to go somewhere you don't want to go, which he will do, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, that doesn't sound comfortable. He's going to call you and me as his disciples into settings which are going to be difficult. But if he's Lord and I'm trusting him, which is what we're going to come on to, then I will happily follow. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared ahead of time for us to do. Do you know that God has prepared good works for you? He prepared this whole scene for the 72. He's prepared it. And, and he has uniquely prepared a context and a place and people and work for you to do it uniquely for you, uniquely. The person you are, your background, your past, your skin color, the languages you speak, the interests you have, the passions you have, the person who lives next door to you, the person you work with, the children that have been born to you, the partner that you may be married to, the parents that you have the disappointments in life that you've had, the successes that you've had, a whole series of events have been determined, planned by God. Opportunities have come to you that are unique for you. There is something uniquely for you to do. We are part of a body, the church, which has been uniquely called, if you like, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Within the context of the church are individual members joined to one another with particular and peculiar calls on their lives. There are places that only you really can make the difference because he's uniquely put you there. Your work matters. Your, your, your work matters. really does. You might not like very much what you do, but God's called you to good works in those places. You need to be encouraged to trust him in them. And it's interesting, he sends out 72. It's not just the 12. This is, in effect, everyone. Everyone has been sent out on this mission. This is his work. This is his initiative. This is his power. You know, I've never read this passage 
and at the end of it gone, wow, those 72, gosh, they were talented. Weren't they, weren't they impressive? I've never read it like that. I've obviously only ever read it going, isn't it amazing that God would use this group to go and do these remarkable things? And the whole point that Jesus is wanting to make and Luke, as he, inspired by the Spirit, is writing this down. He wants you and I to know, however ordinary we might feel, however unspectacular at times our lives might appear to be, he loves to use you and me. And he has determined to use you and me, would we trust him. So that's the next thing that we're looking at. We need to learn how success requires trust in the Lord. You have to trust him. Look at how he puts it in verse 3. So having said he's going to send them, this is his pep talk. Right, listen to this. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, hang on a sec. I'm not sure I like the sound of that. I'm a lamb. Correct. You're sending me out. I am into wolves. Bingo, you've got it. I'm not sure as a lamb I'm going to be able to deal with a wolf. I think that's obvious, isn't it? Why would a good shepherd open the sheep gate and gather his lambs and go, right, go. There are a whole load of wolves over there. It seems reckless, doesn't it? It seems irresponsible. Why would you go? Why would they go after that pep talk? If he's saying, hey, I'm sending you like lambs into wolves, on what basis would you be willing to still go other than being out of your mind? Well, surely it's because you trust him. Surely it's because you are confident that despite the reality he's anticipating, you're going to be okay. And the disciples were more than okay. What happened, of course, was did they encounter wolves? They certainly did. They were casting demons out. Here's the point. They were able to go. They were able to trust. Because despite the fact that they were walking towards the wolves, they had beside them the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion has gone before them. You see, that's who Jesus is. He is the lion. He's the all-powerful one. Now, if God is for me, who can be against me? Greater is he who is within me than he who is within the world, the Bible says. I might be a lamb, I might be a sheep, and I might be about to encounter a wolf. But if I've got a lion next to me, I feel pretty safe and pretty confident. Jesus doesn't send them into peril and into a situation where they're going to be smothered and crushed and defeated. In fact, he stresses this point in verse 19 where he says this, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and look at this explicitly, he says, nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. You and I can be confident 
courageous. We can step into situations which seem to have the odds emphatically stacked against us. And as the church in this nation today, that's what it looks like a lot of the time. The odds are stacked against us. He loves to choose the weak things of this world to shame the strong, the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He does it this way because it draws attention to himself. This whole episode shows you how Jesus has the power to cast out demons and heal the sick. It's nothing intrinsically in these disciples or in you and I that brings about change and transformation in the world, but the power of God working through us and the authority that we've received in his name. I can go as a lamb into a field full of wolves if a lion is next to me fighting my corner. And, and when we share the gospel and we talk to people about Jesus, that's the posture that we should assume. We don't go forcibly to convert people. That's not what we call. We go like lambs. We're meek. In the sense we look weak and pathetic. It's easy to laugh at Christians. <laughs> We're an easy target. And in a sense, we should be. We're not going to go aggressively. We're not going to be um, forcibly trying to convert people to our religion. That's not how it's done. We go like lambs. But the lion, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb of God. And we're going to come on to think about that towards the end. But he is the lamb. As well, he is the lamb, the pure one, the sacrifice, the one who in his sacrifice and death disarms the powers and the authorities who would attack us. He's disarmed them already. So he should not fear. And again, Jesus throughout the Gospels is stressing this point over and over. Listen to these arresting words in Luke 12, verses 4 to 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more of more value than sparrows. It's a very, very arresting uh, few verses that I've just read. And, and the point is this. If anyone is to be feared, it's not, it's not the person who can harm your body. It's the one who has the authority to send you to hell. Wow, that's arresting. Now, who is that? Well, that's God himself. Are we to fear God? Well, good fear of God is right for the Christian. A good fear of God is one that says he is all-powerful and mighty and good and holy and utterly unlike me. And yet, I can boldly approach him with confidence. Boldly come to him. This is one I don't run away from. He's one I run to. How? Because... Fear of judgment, fear of hell, fear of death 
has gone, has been taken away from me. Staggering reality for us. So if the threat of hell and the threat of judgment has been removed from us, then what is there left on earth for me to fear? What is left on earth for you to fear if all of those things have been dealt with? You see, you and I as Christians walking in the victory of Jesus Christ and having really understood what he has done for us and the security we have in him are free to be courageous and bold and brave and to take great steps of faith with our our finances, with our, with our time, with our future, because we fully trust the one who's walking with us, this great lion who is beside us. We have to overcome fear in the process. And here's the truth. I'm not sure I've, I've ever been on an adventure with Jesus that didn't require me to overcome fear. I mean that. I can think of the things which I've done in my life witnessing to friends and neighbours, praying for someone who was sick, praying for a neighbour who was sick. First time I was asked to preach, I said no, I was fearful. And I knew that God was dealing with a fear of man in me that had to die. I had to know who was beside me. I had to know who it was within me. I had to know a fear cast out and a love that has come to dwell within me. I've certainly had to overcome fear every time I've taken a step of faith. And I'm sure that I've missed out on some great adventures because I didn't fully trust God. We need to learn that success requires trust in the Lord. I want to urge you, you can trust him. He's got great works planned for you. You have been sent. We have been sent. Every disciple is sent by Jesus to go and do good works, as the 72 were. So you need to feel boldness and faith to lay hands on the sick, to love the marginalised, to be patient with your children, to work through tough relationships, to, to persevere in your faith. You need to do that, and it's so worth it, because he's got these good works prepared for you and you'll see him use you. You'll see him come through as these disciples did. Now let's finish then with this. Learn how success is redefined by the Lord. So let's just go back. Let's just look at those couple of verses. Um, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, you can understand their euphoria. Just imagine it. Just imagine it just for a moment. Okay, here's the thing. We, let's imagine we were able to gather together in the NBC. Let's imagine the hundreds of us are here and Jesus says to each of us, I want you to go out into the streets of Winchester and I want you to find every sick person, every marginalized person. I want you to go and love people. I want you to pray for people. I want you to see the, the sick healed. Lay hands on the sick, see them healed. 
And you and I, we go out and we do these things. And as a reaction, as, as demonic spirits start to hurl abuse at us and we call them out in the name of Jesus and these spirits flee and people are set free and people are healed. And you come back and we gather back again in the building and we come and we are rejoicing in what we've seen. We're celebrating the miracles that have been worked through our hands in the name of Jesus. We're, we're rejoicing in it. And Jesus says to you, stop it. Stop that. You see, you'd be like, huh? What do you mean? Stop. Jesus, what do you mean? We, this is amazing. So, no, no, no. You're, those things are great. Don't get me wrong. But there's something better. This is what he says. Do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I just love, I just love Jesus so much. And I love that he said that. I can't tell you how liberating and releasing it is. We're so fickle. We, we're fickle, aren't we? We, we? we make things which are good ultimate so often rejoicing in things which are actually of secondary importance even miracles and the casting out of demons you can do those things and and misunderstand their significance which is kind of what the disciples did here in fact i'd go so far as to say this that this whole event Jesus sending these 72 out, the miracles that they saw, the, the taste of success that they had, that the whole scene before us in Luke 10 was orchestrated by Jesus that he might make this point. This is the sledgehammer of truth. Rejoice not in ministry. Rejoice not in your successes in your work, in your parenting. Rejoice not in your CV and in your achievements. Rejoice not in your talents and in your abilities. Rejoice not in the things that you do. Rather, rejoice in what he has done. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. In Revelation, in Revelation it's referred to as the Lamb's book of life. Who is the lamb? He's the lion of Judah. He's also the lamb of God who was slain for us. It's the lamb's book of life because it's a book which has names written in it in the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, so many of us are striving almost through blood and sweat and tears to achieve success where Jesus says, hey, don't, don't live for that. When you know that your name is written in this book, in blood, in my blood, it's irreversible. It's, it can't be deleted. It, it's, it can't be erased. You're, you're securely there forevermore in the book of life. Now that's something to rejoice in. That's something to rejoice in. That's success. And the success is not my achievement. I am not in the book of life on account of anything I've done. It's the Lamb's book. It's what the Lamb has done. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the one who's truly successful.
and the success which we get to taste and enjoy in ministry is really his work through us anyway. I have no gift that hasn't come to me from him. I have no opportunity that hasn't been presented to me by him. He is sovereign. He knows the outcome of the throw of the dice, of every dice he knows beforehand. He is the God who orchestrates all things and is working through all things for his glory. And in that process, our good. So we get to benefit. You and I have to know this. He does not need us for his mission, but he desires to use us, nevertheless. He doesn't need me, doesn't need me at all. But he wants to give me the opportunity to work alongside him in his mission. And what a privilege that is. He doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. He wants to draw you into the adventure that he's on. Would you trust him in that? Would you trust him fully? He redefines success. The, the cross has redefined success for us. That which looked like abject defeat is the greatest victory of all. For at the cross, he disarms the powers and the authorities. At the cross, he crushed the serpent's head under his foot. He says, you can walk over serpents and scorpions. You can do that because he crushed the serpent's head. That promise in Genesis 3, he will crush his head. He's done it. He's done it. Ultimate victory is assured. Ultimate victory is assured. Our role now is to declare good news, that you can know peace with God. You can be secure in this life. You don't need to strive to achieve your own greatness when he is the greatest of all. And he's the great successful king who we follow behind. This is our encouragement today as we come to the end of this series, thinking about discipleship, that we would learn what true success is. And true success is pointing men and women to Jesus Christ and reveling and celebrating in his victory. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's stand on the rock together. Let's pray. Father God, we, we today surrender all of our ambition to you and we lay at your feet all of our own dreams and all of our own strivings and we don't rejoice in the efforts of men but we rejoice in the victory of your son and we boast in him and in what he has done and we thank you that you have created good works for us to do thank you that you do have work for us to do you do have a mission you've sent us on a mission each of us uniquely positioned in places to do particular things and we trust you Lord, we recognize that there's a lot of opposition out there and there's a lot of resistance. And Lord, we, we just ask, help us to be like you. Help us to, to love as you've loved. Help us to trust you. That the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb that was slain. The lion and the lamb is who you are. And we 
as your, as the sheep of your flock, trust you as our good shepherd. And we thank you. Ultimately, nothing can hurt us. Yes, our bodies will suffer, but our spirits are alive forevermore in you. And our names are written in your book. And we thank you for the wonderful truth that that is for us today. Use us for your glory. Amen.